Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 11th of January, as we record. We are taking to the skies to start the show today, discussing the literal and metaphorical fallout from a big story across the Atlantic a few days ago, the blowout on the Boeing 737 MAX flight last weekend, and the latest blow to plane manufacturer Boeing's reputation. We will talk about the future of the company and its rival Airbus and the potential knock-on effects for aviation in general, and maybe some UK airlines too. Then we're zooming even further out with our cover story this week, which is all about the idea of global fracturing US-China tensions and the risk that they and other pressures, of which recent events in the Red Sea are but one example, spill over into something more serious for the global economy. And last but not least, we come back down to earth with a look at UK company results with a particular focus on the UK labour market and the recruiters who have posted some trading updates in recent days. Joining me to discuss all of this are in the studio, Mike Fahey. Hello. Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. Hermione Taylor. And over the line, Mark Robinson. How's it going, Dan? You okay? It's going very well. Thank you, Mark. We're going to begin then with Boeing, as discussed. The 737 MAX, Mike, this door effectively blew out midair, yep. an Alaska Airlines flight. Obviously, it comes after several years of safety concerns for Boeing as well. This plane was a relatively new one, but they've had to ground other versions of the 737 MAX for several years before this. Mm-hmm. We'll start with the latest incident. What damage has this done to their reputation? I mean, the share price fell quite a bit on the, the day after. And, and, you know, this is, as I say, not the first incident. Yeah, so the incident happened on a, on Friday and the first trading day on Monday, Boeing shares were down about 7 or 8%. It is bad reputation, right? It looks terrible um, when it's flashed across TV screens everywhere and there's, you see this gaping hole in the side of a plane that passengers have been on. You hear passengers' testimony about it. You see news cameras go around to the house of the man who finds a, a plane door in his back garden. It just really is a bad look. And as you said, this is a company that, is, that has already struggled reputationally for quite a few years. Um, I did read a couple of analyst notes on it who argued that on a financial basis, and certainly in the short term, that it shouldn't be too bad. The issue affects really only the 737 MAX 9s. As you said, there are lots of different variations of the MAX. And even then, it seems to be only those with doors that they call plugged or just doors that are permanently bolted shut. And there aren't too many of these. The US Federal Aviation Administration, it's grounded 179, and there are only... 217 of them out there and most of these fly on the other side of the Atlantic the European authorities have said that there are there are none of this a variant of the max flying here we should say as well for those who don't know that fortunately no one was uh, injured as far mm. as we're aware in this in this accident there was no one sitting on the seat by the door which is a, a small mercy but yes the the impact longer term as well could be significant maybe because these things sometimes have a tendency to, to all add up, don't they? I mean, mm. could there be a case of a reputational tipping point on the one hand, but on the other hand, the fact is Boeing is in a duopoly with Airbus. Yeah. And also both these companies have 
huge order backlogs because yeah. there's a shortage of, of these kind of, uh, of there's a shortage of planes being made effectively so on the one hand there's you know doubts growing about the the company and yeah i think i think it's good to take a step back at the and, and say what's happened before and the earlier versions of the 737 maxes there were two fatal crashes back in 2018 and 2019 an ethiopian and a lion air flight and in both instances, well, the, the two instances led to 346 deaths, and in both, uh, the problems were eventually um, isolated towards the flight computer. And as you've mentioned, the reputation took a real hit because it was rightly dragged through the US House of Representatives and, um, the, and you could see the family's victims there. And they were told a tale of Boeing bosses, uh, and we have to say this is previous management now because pretty much the entire board and management team have been replaced. Um, but there's been whole books dedicated to this and Netflix documentaries talking about how some testing was skimped on, how employees were under real pressure to hit certain deadlines, and then when problems did emerge that they were basically swept under the carpet. So it has a reputational the the hit this is relatively minor in comparison as you said there's nobody injured but i think there is a cumulative effect here and it's when um there is so many uh production problems that any new issue is highlighted um i think there've been something like 10 uh production problems highlighted since the the max incidents, the the ones back in 2018 and 2019, and a lot um, are things that have now been picked up because of what's happened before, and just involve extra checks, extra checks. The regulator is obviously going to be a lot keener and a lot um, exercise much more scrutiny over Boeing because of what's happened. So these, you would hope that. Maybe the, these are not going to be something that could be uh, almost life-threatening to Boeing's uh, future if problems are being caught in production before the planes are, are making it out to the wider world. But clearly, uh, any kind of further build-up is going to make customers think twice about ordering a Boeing plane. Mm. They, they did find some loose bolts, didn't they, among mm. some of the checks uh, this week, which, you know, I, I don't know how serious those things are. It's a good thing they're now tightening them, clearly. Yeah. Uh, Alex, let me bring you in on, on the, the Boeing discussion, maybe before we talk about uh, impact on, on Airbus and, and UK Airlines as well. Or maybe you want to talk about that yourself. What are your sort of takes on the, the, the reputation and the, the sector in general? I mean, the first the first point in reputation, I suppose we could also make the point that, you know, the, the more serious instance that in the, the Mike was referring to in 2018, 2019, didn't prevent Boeing get a low, uh, get, getting a low, lot of orders, including from Ryanair. They've, I think Ryanair put in something like 400 orders for the Max series, mm. though not for the, the Max 9s, which have been the, the, the effect, this affected aircraft. So that shows that, you know, you can have much worse disasters than the Alaska Airlines flight and sort of kind of remain in... Uh, in discussions with airlines, um, ob there's the obvious point that with this, you know, the the if we're looking at planes as an asset, 
there can be no compromise really on safety and that by and large it is it is a very very it, it is a very very safe and highly regulated industry hence you know any um any issues get um you know really see, seized upon because there's you know there's so much to be lost by, uh, from the industry and for i suppose you know uh, so much ri- uh, risk here for flyers safety fears if um if anything is seen to be going wrong i mean that all said from an investor perspective coming back to the duopoly point is probably the key thing here so if you look back over the last 3 years which avoids most of the pandemic distortion to the to both the airlines and the plane makers you can see that that both boeing and airbus have been the smarter investments over that period so quite a lot last year was made of ryanair's a bit of a vogue uh, vogue stock that's partly because they've they've really won the price war in in europe and done very well at managing their market position but put simply the the, the economics of the air manufacturers businesses are just more favorable i mean it's less competitive because there is this duopoly they're state-backed in 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 some elements of their supply chain, so they have more pricing power when they're dealing with airlines, and they don't have to deal with the vagaries of fuel prices and consumer sentiment that the airlines have to. So, um, in a sense, if you're going to make, you know, if you're an investor and you're thinking of making a play on the expected growth in the industry and you know most of the expectations are that you know we're going to be flying more as a sort of internationally for for decades to come then the air manufacturers still seem like the the smart bet we'll come to airbus in a moment but the the consumer sentiment point is interesting there uh, airbus boeing not subject to this but i do wonder I mean, it does sound a bit like scaremongering, and I'm not sure it'll actually happen. But if more of these things do happen, then maybe you you will get to a point where some consumers start, you know, people consider pricing clearly and what airline they fly with, but they might start considering what actual manufacturer they they fly with. There there is um, a website that I am set up for people who are, I don't know, it was almost like a a cheeky little app where. Um, you type in the flight code of the flight you're on and it will tell you if you're flying on a Boeing or not. The difficulty is um, the Ryanair is a, an unusual example, like Southwest in the US, of being a one manufacturer company. Ryanair flies pretty much almost exclusively Boeings, uh, other than a couple of Airbuses it inherited through acquisitions. Um, and that that is unusual. Most airlines will... Ryanair and Southwest do that for cost reasons, but most airlines will have a mix. So even if you decide to avoid Ryanair as an airline and you book an EasyJet, you really may struggle to know whether or not you're going to be able to Boeing. Mm-hmm. On the subject of Airbus, we'll finally get to them. Uh, now, you did cover them in the ideas section uh, last year as a buy, partly based on Boeing's issues. Mm-hmm. Is there a way they can capitalise on this, or again, is is the same? Is it the same situation whereby Boeing is insulated a bit by this duopoly? Airbus is also restrained by it, and also by the order backlog as well. I think that's a pretty good summation. I mean, to an extent, it looks like it already has benefited benefited from this. Typically, last up until twenty twenty three, its orders ran at roughly around nine hundred a year. Um, it was gradually increasing, but even in 2022, you're at 925. Reuters were predicting last month that Airbus is going to smash its uh, orders record for 
2023. By the nine-month stage, it had already had 1,200 orders. Previous record was... 1800 back in 2014 and the predictions are that it will be there or thereabouts uh, so that's a massive step up it's pretty much doubling its typical orders and and clearly the you know boeing um boeing's issues have had that effect but as you said it's a duopoly so the difficulty is that an airline is wants to order a new airbus now there are almost 10 years of orders already on the slate. You're waiting a long time to get one. Final point on Boeing. The question is, how quickly can they turn this around, even on a, not just reputationally, but on the ground level? I mean, you do wonder sometimes if these are skills shortage issues or whether it's just a case of you know cutting corners or cutting costs and, and things they haven't factored in, therefore, which they'll then need to go back and look at. I think it's, it's well, I mentioned earlier, I think it's been well documented that there are, there was some clear corner cutting there in the past. But both companies made massive layoffs during the pandemic. And an analyst I was speaking to last year when I was writing this Airbus tip said that they both are really struggling um, with the loss of engineering knowledge. You know, there are a bunch of 50-odd-year-old people who just left the industry and aren't coming back and they're not there to train the new apprentices etc and that's not just within the companies themselves but throughout this massive diverse supply chain that they've got yeah again i feel like i'm being a bit doom mongering this week but it's one of those things that makes you wonder about the the occasional mutterings about the loss of knowledge in all sectors and, mm. and slow decline that kind of thing but uh yeah well, Dan, we could point out as well that uh, in, in the post-war period, the, the biggest challenge to uh, Boeing or the US was the, the British civil aviation industry, which was very advanced, uh, well-funded at the time, but after a series of uh, technical uh, mishaps, I think, which culminated in the disaster with, uh, I think it was the Comet, uh, we know what's happened since then. We, we still have a civil aviation industry here, but it's... Uh, Nothing like the scale that was in the post-war period. Mm. I, w- I would say another point about Boeing that's worth keeping in mind as well is that they do get uh, a great deal of support uh, through military mm. contracts too. Yeah, yeah, there is that aspect of the business. And in terms of commercial aircraft, the one kind of, it's tiny for now, but China's uh, had launched a state-owned airline company to produce commercial airliners. I think it started back in t- 2008. It's taken a long time, but it delivered its first commercial aircraft last year they are now flying and one would imagine that in the future there's a lot of chinese state airlines which would put business its way well you've created a very good segue for uh, our next discussion which is thank you very much about the uh, cover feature this week which as discussed is on the idea of global fracturing and a large part of that is born out of u.s china tensions but also this idea hermione of uh, the fact that globalisation may be in retreat to an extent. Can you talk a bit more about what your thinking was in writing the piece? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is a huge, huge topic, but to put it in very simple terms, it's the idea that the world economy is starting to fracture and that some of these trade and financial relationships that we've been taking for granted for decades are actually starting to fray. And there seems to be a sort of consensus emerging amongst economists and policymakers that it will take the shape of a world splitting into two blocks, which will probably coalesce around the US and China as the biggest economies in the world. And we've got a bit of evidence that this is already happening. But the huge question and the one I tried to look at in the feature is how dramatic this decoupling would actually be. 
yeah, I suppose taken in some or taken to the extreme scenario, it does kind of remind you of a Cold War type era. I don't think we're necessarily going back to that on, on any level, but but clearly there are examples, uh, certainly on the trade front, of these kind of things happening. Can we can we talk a little bit about some of the protectionist policies and, and subsidies and things like that go, that have been going on? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's probably worth pointing out that globalisation has actually been slowing since the financial crisis. So back then we saw spending slow and then trade slowed. And because banks were rebuilding their capital buffers, we saw cross-border lending slow as well. So in a way, this has quite long roots. But since then, we've seen US-China rivalries intensify. And this has been complicated by geopolitical events as well. So they're now at odds over the Israel-Gaza conflict too. We've got some evidence already of this relationship breaking down. So we've had West and restrictions on sales to China of high-performance AI chips made by NVIDIA and also on ASML lithography machines. And there's a lot of noise from policymakers about critical minerals as well. So back in December, the House of, Columns, House of Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee warned that China had captured large parts of the critical minerals market and was ready to exploit the economic advantages this entails. And the, Euro Commission, the European Commission have also launched um, an anti-subsidy probe into China's um, electric vehicle dominance as well. Yeah, that Chinese uh, prowess in clean energy and uh, electric vehicles, as you say, is clearly going to be a growing theme in the years to come. The hope will be that we can continue to work together rather than uh, against one another, but that's quite pie in the sky summary. I suppose it's never as simple as that, is it? Uh, what would the implications for the global economy be in a range of scenarios? Because economists have modelled these things, haven't they? They have um, looked at, you know, again, the extreme scenario, but there are also many areas in between, depending on how well US, China and other countries' relations pan out in the years ahead. Yeah, I mean, so if we take the worst case scenario, this would sort of be a world economy split completely in two between the two blocks and all trade between them ceases. So it looks like this would be quite bad for the US. So economists estimate they would lose about 3.4% of their output, but it would be far worse for China. So it looks as though they could lose 16% of output if that happens. Even if the blocs do retain 75% of the trade volumes that they currently have, there'd still be quite a big impact. So we get estimates of about a 1% hit for the US economy and a 4% hit for China. It's made slightly more complicated by the fact that trade isn't the only thing that this fracturing would impact. So economists are very conscious that we'd see things like knowledge sharing would stop and we wouldn't see medical advances shared and we wouldn't see technological development shared. And this is quite abstract, but there is a lot of interesting research on this. Um, and there's one study that thought that if um, fracturing meant that we saw trade in high-tech goods and services halted, the impact could be up to 12% of GDP for some some economies. And it would probably be the lower income areas that would suffer the most. Yeah, the idea being, I think, that these areas that benefit most from knowledge diffusion filtering out so from the major. from high knowledge to, low, mm. to lower knowledge economies, yeah. And so they'd really suffer in those scenarios. I think those middle ground scenarios do seem the ones to focus on, though, because, of course, a, a complete cessation of trade yeah, seems that highly... definitely seen as a tail risk. ...highly yeah. improbable, uh, not least because for all uh, this discussion and, and for all the interesting points we, we look at in the piece, the economy, the global economy is still pretty entwined, and the, the US and China likewise. yeah. I mean, economists think that there's, because these are the two biggest economies in the world, there's only so far that these tensions can go because they're very hard to replace. Um, so even though there's a lot of talk about supply chain diversification, China's share of global exports is so huge that it would probably take a very long time for other economies to kind of fill, fill its place. 
I think it's probably more likely that instead of widespread cracks everywhere, we'll see a few deeper cracks, but in quite um, fragile areas like kind of batteries or biotech trade. Or potentially geographically with the the Red Sea tensions we've seen, because it's not just US-China directly, is it? It's all these uh, issues going on around the world, many of which in different forms have existed for a long time, of course, but the the point being that, that some of these cracks are becoming more visible. That Red Sea route, for example, being one short-term example where there's a very clear impediment to trade quite physically at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, what about, to return to the US and China, what about the impact of the US election? Because a lot of these tensions have risen under the Biden administration, but we could get a Trump administration back again later this year. Is there any sense of what kind of impact that would have for, for better, for worse on on this issue as a whole? I mean, the first term of Trump, you know, taking a relatively isolationist point of view in some ways, but but equally quite a forthright one in others, to say the least. I mean, um, I mean, a, a Trump scenario would be more extreme, but surprisingly, um, a lot of economists don't see much scope for any election result actually improving tensions. So we had analysts at Goldman Sachs saying that actually both Biden and Trump have supported quite restrictive trade policy um, and that they expect trade policy to remain quite activist, whoever wins. So it looks like whatever happens in the election won't really do much to fix these tensions. Alex, what's your take? Oh, as resident, always returning to UK investor. I suppose for that UK investor, or I suppose investors who who have a lot of their portfolios with higher exposure to the UK economy than the UK economy sits in, you know, within the global economy. I suppose one, the, the really big thing to remember is that although we talk interchangeably about US and UK companies, how they compete against each other and the like, the t- the two economies are very are very different. So our trading relationships, this is the UK, have had you know obviously quite clearly clearly a very messy few years since Brexit. Um, but it's not really up for debate that trade is essential to the UK economy. And the US, by comparison, while obviously highly plugged into the international system, is far more self reliant and able to go it alone. Which I think underlines some of the well, it's a bit a bit of brinksmanship that's going on both democrats and republicans in in how they're sort of charting future international policy you know they more than anyone have the resources scale um etc to back it up if they wanted to be more uh, inward looking over the coming decades they they could do it and they've got less to lose than uh, you know from a future that is that, that looks like that that than 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 has been the case for I suppose the the global order since the Second World War. But yeah, I mean, we you just touched on it, and Hermione touches on it in the piece on the the I suppose the the pinch point for geopolitical tensions this week that everyone's looking at is the Red Sea. Obviously, in attacking commercial shipping vessels heading through the Suez, you know the Houthis and Iran, um, they know exactly how disruptive this can be, and so at the risk of st- straying into speculation about you know, where this is all going to go. And it does threaten to restoke inflation and add massive commercial risks to any goods flowing from Asia to Europe because rerouting through, um, you know, around Africa is is massively costly for the shipping industry. You know, the UK has this sort of somewhat accidental naval presence and there's sort of a accident history really in this region. But it probably has more to lose in a way from a, a breakdown of safe passage here than America. And it's a, I think it's a really interesting test case we're probably about to see here because if America is going to withdraw um, from being this sort of policeman of international trade, it possibly sees a closer alignment between Europe and, and Britain and China just to complicate 
those blocks a little bit because the Suez means more to Europe and Asia than it does to does to America. So America's enduring place there and what that means for companies, economies, you know, in the in the east of the of the globe is is a lot more frightening, potentially fragile. So um yeah, I mean, a, a, a lot a lot to play for here, but it's always worth bearing in mind that um, the UK economy probably is is a bit more caught in between than you know the the US bloc, um, and its sort of alliance dynamic would would sometimes have it. Indeed. Well, as I say, that is our cover story this week. So I do pick up a copy of the magazine and look at that. We're going to focus though on the domestic now to an extent because we're talking about recruiters here. But they, like many other UK companies, are to an extent in between uh, nations themselves because a lot of these recruiters are geographically quite diverse. Mark, you have been looking at the figures from Robert Walters today and earlier this week there was also a bit of a warning from Hayes, uh, the larger recruiter rival as well. Uh, What did you glean from these trading updates? Well, the the main point that I got, and I think we've actually um, mentioned it before, is that Towards the second half of next year, we, we finally started to see the, the cumulative effects of interest rate increases uh, on the economy. And that was made perfectly clear in Hayes' results in particular. Uh, as you say, both of those uh, companies have uh, significant international exposure. Uh, it was uh, uh, that gradually built up over, through the 1990s and the early part of this century as well. And it makes perfect sense from a commercial perspective. So it's interesting that uh, most areas suffered for both companies as well. One, an outlier, I guess, about the only outlier was, I think it was Hayes there, uh, uh, German, the German market there, which accounts for about a, a 30%, or well, actually about a third of uh, net fees. That was flat from last time around, which... Uh, is a pretty decent result given that we've been reading so many negative stories about the the German economy at the moment. Mm -hmm. Hayes uh, lowered expectations uh, after uh, what they termed a a difficult December where fee income there just fell off a cliff really, which feeds into the narrative that that actually um, those problems or perceptions linked to the interest rates and the effect that it's having on their business They've actually deteriorated as the years gone on as well, which again falls into line with what we've said in the past as well. Uh, Robert Walters, they cut about 220 roles and they've still got five, 4,000 consultants on the job there, but they reported a 13% reduction in net fee income, which was pretty much in, in line with Hayes. Robert Walters' profits or the guidance was maintained unlike Hayes, but uh, that had been uh, that had been sort of uh, reduced earlier on in the year too. So there, there wasn't a, a great deal of difference uh, between the two companies. Prior to the podcast here, uh, you mentioned to me one of the differences between the company is the proportion of the business that goes over to uh, temporary and, and permanent uh, placements as well, which is, uh, which is having an effect as well. But I think temporary placements have held up slightly better. It was interesting, really, because I looked at um, the recent US job figures, which are ostensibly were, were quite positive. But when you actually drill into them a bit and look at uh, private uh, sector job creation, that's actually mm. pretty pretty poor. Anything away from government subsidy was quite poor. And full-term placements as well 
uh, was showing weakness. So that overall picture of the US labor market is a little bit misleading to a degree. One of the other points that worth considering is if we are entering a period where the labor market is under pressure, and it, it seems pretty clear that it is at the moment, what, what is going to be the effect on uh, the UK stock market? Well, the the impact isn't quite clear cut, but when you've looked in the past, it, it very, quite often it's uh, precipitated or or foreshadowed uh, an improvement uh, in, in the stock market valuations as well. Uh, certainly over the short term, because um, when, you, when you think about both bond and stock prices, they, they could rise significantly on news of, of rising on unemployment, because it, it must be the case that a bad labor market causes expected uh, future interest rates to decline, the, the chance of that as well. And given the inverse relationship with equities, that could actually be a, a good thing for the UK market. The, 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 the flip side to that is, of course, of an extended period, then it would lead to a, um, an aggregate fall in demand within the economy and a consequent reduction in earnings. So I think it's a bit like the, the inflation argument we were having a few months back, you know, if it's a fairly sort of short uh, duration where we're weakening jobs market, it, it could actually be pretty good for uh, equities as uh, perverse as that may seem. I, I don't think I looked at the ONS figures regarding this too as well. And, and in the uh, three months of November, there was 949,000 positions that are advertised, but that was down a quarter of a million from uh, the comparable period last year. So. Obviously, you know, we can see the direction of travel at the moment. Yeah. I and mean, the story of the labour market of the past couple of years has been relatively surprising resilience, hasn't it, given the uh, higher interest rate environment we're in. But there's always been this concern that that is a, a lagging indicator and that things would start to be brought to bear, which there are some indications in, in, in the the UK market that that is happening. We, I think we're going to talk to Hermione in a moment just about UK figures, but to go back to the companies themselves, one interesting aspect, I suppose, with Hayes is this question of the December slowdown, which was so significant, whether that is the start of the kind of slowdown you might expect, given the higher rate environment, or whether it is people, perhaps given the turn of the year, putting off some decisions slightly. Hard to say at this stage. Yeah, exactly. You've got to wait for a couple of other updates to uh, to see exactly what pans out. But I mean, as I said before, I think it, it, it's clear that there is weakness in that market down. Mm. And uh, countries as well, which uh, have seen uh, the starkest uh, reduction in discretionary incomes, I'm thinking here of Australia and the UK, have underperformed Asian markets and uh, and European as well. Mm. So it, it just shows that, that, that those interest rates uh, really start to bite over the second half of uh, 2023. Yeah. And we have, uh, speaking of more information, I think Page Group next Monday it is, I think, have got their own trading update out. They, like Robert Walters, are relatively skewed towards permanent placements. Hayes is about 60% temporary. Robert Walters is about a third temporary. So there are some differences there, as you point out, Mark, to, to keep an eye on, particularly as temporary recruitment has held up even better than permanent recruitment over the last year. Uh, but just to just to turn to uh, you, Hermione, because I wanted to pick up on a point Mark made about almost the soft landing, I suppose, in the employment market. We've been speaking about the economic soft landing for a while, i.e. can inflation come down without too much of an increase in unemployment? And, uh, and now we're really shifting towards the second half of that question, aren't we? We're looking at 
whether economies can facilitate rate cuts by lower inflation rather than needing to cut rates because interest rates have caused the likes of unemployment to rise so quickly, whether we can get to that stage. What is the what is the UK labour market suggesting at the moment? In some ways, policymakers are still more concerned about the strength of the market than, than the weakness. Yeah, I would say that the UK labour market well, and the US labour market as well have both been a bit of a puzzle. So everything that we thought we knew about interest rates told us that interest rates would slow the economy and inflation would fall, but that unemployment would rise at the same time. And this just hasn't happened, especially in the UK. There's been some quite interesting research on this that's suggested a few things, and some of them are related to the pandemic. So we've got some evidence that people just don't want to work in contact-heavy areas like recreation and accommodation, the kind that people really wanted to avoid when there was a contagious disease going around. Um, And then we've also got evidence that people are cutting back their hours. And the OBR, who produces forecasts for the government, they've also put that into their projections. So this is a big trend. And we've also got the fact that because we've had labour shortages, some firms are still worried about hiring difficulties. So they're hoarding labour and not letting people go. So this all seems to have contributed to a situation where we've got higher interest rates and slow growth, but not a corresponding increase in unemployment. So we're in a situation now where the Bank of England are making a huge amount of noise about wage inflation and sending a very strong message that they really want to see wage growth going down before they start thinking about rate cuts. I think this will get very interesting over the next few months because some economists think that we could have our inflation rate back at target um, by the first half of this year. So this could fall down very quickly, but it might take wage inflation a lot longer to come down. So we could end up with some really, really interesting debates going on between policymakers about whether it's time to cut interest rates um, because inflation is back down or whether this labour market pressure is kind of still simmering under the surface and we should hold off a bit longer. That is the the big question, isn't it? I, I do think that the impact of the pandemic is under-recognised or at least Underrecognized because it's hard, so hard to understand still, as you say, whether it be shortages, whether it be uh, labour market changes. This isn't a normal cycle, and maybe that's why things like the Phillips curve haven't proven uh, accurate this time around. Maybe it's something else entirely, but I think we should always try and remember that when we're trying to factor in, you know, what we consider to be the, the next stage of the cycle is the fact that the start of the cycle was so different from anything we've we've ever seen, really. Uh, Mark, I don't know if you had some some final thoughts on the recruiters, on the labour market in general. I, I just one of the points that you brought up before as well for the the companies themselves. Mm. One of one of the features and one of the uh, chief adaptabilities of the companies is that they, in the past, have been able to reduce their consultant numbers in line with uh, volumes in the in the labour market too. So it isn't that much of an issue for them, or at least they can reduce the the worst effects of that too. Um, I, I guess. Uh, as uh, Hermione alluded to before as well, the, the situation on uh, real wages uh, has had an impact because uh, they'd been depressed for quite some time, certainly in the UK, but uh, there's evidence to suggest they're uh, on the increase now, and that's going to affect of, uh, employers and their attitude to taking on new staff too. Indeed. Unfortunately, that does bring us to the end of the show because we have run out of time, but thank you very much to Hermione, to Mark, to Mike, to Alex, and to our producer, Maddie Apthorpe. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Market show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 